Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Today's going to be a nerdy day. It's going to anybody in this room like history? History fans, okay, several of you. Anybody like philosophy? Few less, okay, but that's good. I'm like, um, that's that's great. Sorry for those of you who don't, you know, read a book. But I'm, it's not going to be get off Netflix. It's not going to be your ser- sermon today. Um, but maybe you'll learn a thing or two because uh, here, here's what I want. I, sometimes I go full nerd on you because I want us to know that we don't just have an emotional faith; we have a rational faith as well. I, I want to show people who think that Christianity is all about you know faith, not facts, or Christianity doesn't engage with sciences and. Um, with history and with philosophy. I wanna show them how wrong they are. So I do not believe in God because my mama told me so, although I'm thankful for her. Um, when I step into my faith, I don't have to turn my brain off to be a believer in Jesus. Uh, I believe in the Christian do- uh, God because I've investigated the world's greatest religions. I've investigated the sort of without God worldview that we see in our culture right now. Um, in the the modern West, and I believe that Christianity makes more sense. It makes more emotional sense, and it makes more rational sense. Uh, It feels right in my soul, but it also adds up in my brain. I want it to be true in my heart, but I know it to be true with my mind. And it's important to remind ourselves of that. Now, let's acknowledge Christianity doesn't always make perfect sense. There are lots of questions that are difficult that uh, I've struggled with. I've changed my mind on issues and I'm sure I'll change my mind on more things. But I think it makes the most sense by far in my humble opinion. And today, I wanna show you an example of that by talking about the Christian approach to justice. Now, in this day and age, everyone's talking about justice. I wanna show you how Christianity uniquely equips us to seek shalom and do justice the best. Which is so important to me, by the way, because I'm proud of this. I'm proud that Christianity places such a high priority on this. I'm proud that we have the best emotional and intellectual resources for it. I'm proud, you know, uh, I've kind of gotten, if you know me, I've got the reputation of being a little bit of a social justice warrior. Uh, and I am. And uh, I remember in 2020, uh, there was, uh, there's, there's a gentleman who, who was very angry with me for some of the things I was saying on stage, some of the things our church was doing to show love to neighbor in the city. And, uh, and so I called him. And I'll never forget in the conversation, he started to get upset and angry. And finally, he just said to me, well, you know, Tyler, Northeast is just being too compassionate. Uh, to which I thought, thank you? <laughs> you know? See, like if, when I die, if there's something that has to be written on my tombstone, it might as well be that, right? Here, here lies Tyler, may he rest in peace. He was too compassionate, you know? I'll, I guess I'll go for that. <laughs> uh, 
Now, some people would say, well, no, the reason why you're so up on justice is because you're one of those youngsters. You're one of those woke millennials. Y'all started it and look at where it's gone now, you know. Um, but I would continue, uh, contend with you today that the reason why I care about justice isn't because I'm a youngster. It's because I'm a follower of Jesus. The prophet Micah said three things the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Jesus himself says in his Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. You see? So I'm here to report to you today good news. Christians, we have in our Jesus, in our God, in our sacred texts, an amazing impulse for justice. And some of the most powerful doctrines there are to drive us towards us. In fact, uh, towards us. In fact, I got two, two powerful foundational doctrines that I want to walk you through today that I believe actually give us the rational and emotional motivation, we'd ever, like all that we'd ever need to do justice. Uh, the first one's the doctrine of the image of God. You've heard this one before. Uh, this is the idea that every human bears God's image and thus has intrinsic dignity and purpose. The second one is the doctrine of unlimited atonement, unlimited atonement. This is the idea that in love, Jesus died for all the sins of all people. Now, this isn't a universalist doctrine. This isn't like everybody is automatically saved. Uh, no, you have to accept that love of Jesus. You have to use your mind, think it through, and give your loyalty to him. But make no mistake, every single person in this room walking around has been died for. It's just a matter if they choose to bend the knee to the king of the cross. So let me translate these two doctrines for you in street talk, okay? Basically, it's like this. Uh, uh, every person you come eyeball to eyeball with is a bearer of God's image and died for by Jesus. And that matters. That means every person you come eyeball to eyeball with is valuable. This is why Christians have such a strong impulse to build communities that allow humans to flourish. Because we look around, we're like, whoa, look at them. They're beautiful, they're beloved. Now, I wanna acknowledge real quick though, that this is one of the unique places where uh, we share enormous consensus with our popular culture. When it comes to uh, equality, when it comes to the desire for justice, universal human rights, if you will, an incredible point of conversation and consensus that we should be leading. Now here's the catch though. While our culture and Christianity both arrive at human rights together, don't miss this, we both have very different ways of justifying why we believe in them. You see? So I think it's worth asking and answering today this question, who does a better job though? Who does a better job of explaining why humans have rights and then motivating people to honor them and others. Christianity or this sort of without God worldview that we see in the secular West. Now, I bring this question up because I think this is a huge intellectual problem for our secular culture. They've basically convinced a generation that human rights is the, like capital, the issue. And I don't mind that, it's good but they don't give us the intellectual reasons why 
we should care so much about human rights or why we should believe that this is like some universal norm or absolute. Okay, so let's talk history, recent history. Uh, after World War II, Nazis and, and Hitler and, and all that. Um, in, in the 19, 1948, the UN came together and uh, they, uh, they composed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as they should in this, uh, in this tragic moment in world civilization. Now, uh, it was uh, actually chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, who's a Christian. And based on how widely it's been embraced and accepted, it is an extraordinary achievement, no doubt. There are 30 articles. And, uh, and I just wanna give you a sample of what a few of them say. You can go read them all later if you'd like. Uh, article one, and Christians, we can affirm this. Article one says that uh, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Article three says, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Article four says, no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Article seven says, all are equal before the law and uh, are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. Article 18 says, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Article 19 says, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. And that's just a sample. Okay, now it's gonna sound like I'm being a little bit hard on this declaration over the next few minutes. I want you to hear me loud and clear. I'm not, I'm, not. I'm Tyler is for human rights. Okay, we've made the statement, right? There's so much good in this declaration. But what I want you to see is how hard it is for irreligious people to explain why this universal declaration should be universally acknowledged. They really can't. It's called the universal the universal declaration of human rights. Or in other words, it's not just the earthlings that should accept this, the Martians should too. Like it's not just, you know, people in the Middle East or people who are, you know, leading world superpowers or folks in the global south. No, if aliens ever try to invade the planet Earth, one, they should recognize that Will Smith is still alive. And two, two, they need to acknowledge that they should stop doing that because this is the universal declaration of human rights. Now, what, what universal basis do they have to support it though? Now, this is one of the things that actually makes this declaration famous because it's the first time that uh, human rights were put down with no universal basis. When the Declaration of Independence was written in 1776, um, it actually declared human rights and equality, but it had a universal basis written in. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So as you can see, the Declaration of Independence appealed to the creator for our rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, appealed to nothing. It just basically said, humans have rights because they just do, because we all know that, because I said so. Okay, you remember when you were a kid and you'd be like, dad, why do I have to do it? Why, 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 why? And eventually you'd just say, because I said so. That's what we're doing here. Because I said so. And honestly, that's how most secular Americans think about it. And we don't need God to tell us that humans have rights. It's just obvious, right? 
It's just obvious to any rational, educated person knows that, that all human beings are created equal. So we should just get on board. Get on board, y'all. Now, the problem with that, though, is that it's not true. That's not true. All rational and educated people don't agree with us on this. Let's just start in the present day. There are many modern, rational, educated people around the world who disagree with the declaration. In 1948, Saudi Arabia refused to sign it. Did you know that? Their representative argued that the declaration violated Islamic law and failed to accommodate the cultural and religious contexts of non-Western countries. Pretty influential nation. In 1982, Iran's representative said uh, the declaration was just a secular version of Judeo-Christianity anyways. You're just doing Christianity without the God language, they said. Atheist North Korea tops the list for human rights abuses today. Atheist China and Hindu India are also on the top of the human rights watch list. So it is not acknowledged by everyone, okay? Some of the most advanced, educated, and wealthy places on earth don't acknowledge this. Now look, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but Tyler, you know, as North Korea and China, they're the worst, you know? Like it's, it's easy for us as, as Americans to villainize them because those are those countries we like to villainize. But it's not just the nations that we villainize who push back. It's also the nations that we're trying to humanize and normalize. I was listening to a Tim Keller lecture on this recently and he pointed out that there was a woman who wrote an article in 1995. Okay, so this is a bit ago, right? In the 20th century. Isn't that funny how we call it the 20th century now? My childhood was in the 20th. Anyways, that's a, I'm having a moment. Um, so she wrote this article in 1995, Chronicle of Higher Education. She was a prominent cultural anthropologist. Her name was uh, Carolyn Fleur Libin. Taught at the Rhode Island College. Retired now. But this is what she said. She said, as a professional cultural anthropologist who didn't believe in God, you never go into a culture and just judge their values. You have to respect diversity. You have to realize that all morals are just culturally constructed anyways. There's no such thing as a moral absolute sent down from heaven by God. But then she started doing work in like tribal African contexts. And when she got there, she saw the abuses of women and she didn't like it. In fact, she started talking to the authorities that be about her concerns and they pushed back against her. This is what they basically said to her. They said, hmm, uh, I thought you believed that all moral values are culturally constructed and that diversity should be respected. Well, on that basis, it is inconsistent for you to say that the way we treat women is wrong. You have your culture, we have ours. You speak as if your Western values are obvious to all educated people. We are educated and they aren't obvious to us. You speak as if your values are obvious to all rational people. We are rational and they aren't obvious to us. When you say that only primitive and unenlightened people don't agree with you, that's bigotry. And you are being just the same white Western imperialists you have always been trying to colonize us with your view. You don't want cultural diversity. You don't wanna to listen to ethnic minorities. When you say diversity is welcome here, what you really mean is that you're cool with our food. Maybe our music and our traditional clothes every once in a while on holidays. 
but you don't want our faith or our culture or our morals. Ouch. Now you get, you get the argument here, right? Basically, they're saying, by your logic, you have no basis to tell us about universal rights and wrongs. They basically throw her beliefs back in her face. So you see how this works? Are you following me? You see how this works? Okay, bottom line here. I think the problem for a secular American who believes in no universal God is that you have no universal authority for universal human rights. And that is a problem. Now, that being said, I offer this for your consideration today. Uh, Christians don't have this issue. We don't. Um, Our authority actually uh, tells us that we should be passionate about human rights. We, We should lay our lives down even for it. That's what our God says. Gives us all the basis we need for universal human rights. John Dixon, he's Australian who has a PhD in ancient history. Um, He points out that most historians today um, admit that the idea of human rights actually started long before the United States of America. Uh, The data actually shows that Christianity developed and popularized the modern idea of human rights. Did you know this? Okay, so let's move out of the present and let's do some ancient history here, okay? In the same way that not everyone agrees with universal human rights today, basically no one agreed with it when Jesus was born. The world that Jesus was born into and ministered in actually believed the opposite of it. They didn't believe that humans had rights. They believed that not all humans had equal rights. Aristotle is famous for saying that some people are naturally born to be slaves. Did you know this? And that more rational people were born to lead. Aristotle writes in his politics, uh, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Wow. Wow. So again, those people who say, well, this is, you know, everyone, if all rational and educated people get this, like everyone should just get on the bus. We all know this, right? Well, it's just not true. History proves this is is wrong. All you have to do is look at the Greeks and the Romans who were quite rational. And by the way, they would probably beat most of us in an argument about this because they had thought this through better than us. Look at him, they would say. Some people are just better looking than others. Look at her. Some people are just smarter than others. Look at him. Some people are just stronger than others. Look at this community. Some communities are just better at promoting prosperity, flourishing, and wealth than others. Some people are better warriors. Some people are better uh, senators. Some people reason better. Some people are wiser. Equal dignity? Prove it, smarty pants. That's what they'd say. To which, again, the secular American would say, Come on, all rational and educated people know that to which Aristotle would then butt in and say, I, 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 hold on, um, I'm quite rational. I'm quite educated. I'm Aristotle, very well read. In fact, you read me. And I don't agree. So we need a better argument, you see? Now that brings us to these two great, beautiful Christian doctrines. Doctrine number one is the doctrine of the image of God. 
We believe as Christians that every human being bears God's image and thus has intrinsic dignity and purpose. This is the first great Christian justification for human rights. It's built on the Hebrew scriptures of our Jewish ancestors. And in Genesis 1, it's laid out at the genesis of human beings. We are stamped with his image, Genesis 1.27. God created human beings in his own image. This is why a few chapters later, Genesis rationalizes that murder is wrong because humans are image bearers. Genesis chapter nine, verse six, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands for God made human beings in his own image. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel later applies this to the poor. Ezekiel 18, five says, suppose a certain man is righteous. Suppose he does what is just and right. He's a merciful creditor not keeping the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, interesting. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice. Now, there's lots of stuff in this passage about financial integrity here, but I think the use of the word rob or the phrase rob the poor is quite interesting because the biblical idea here is that if you do not actively and generously share your excess with the poor, you're robbing them of what's theirs. Fast forward from Ezekiel into the first century and look at the Christians. James, Jesus' brother, he literally argues that you shouldn't even curse a person because of their image-bearing status. Perhaps some of these politicians and their political campaigns who claim to be Christians should memorize this verse. James 3, verse 9, James says, Sometimes the tongue praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Now, as you can see, the early Christians take this Jewish idea of the image of God. They were all Jews at the very beginning of Christianity anyways, and they build a community on it. And this is where doctrine number two comes into play, the doctrine of unlimited atonement. In love, Jesus died for all the sins of all people. Paul describes this Christian belief this way in Colossians 3. And it's all over the New Testament, by the way, but this is maybe one of my favorite instances. Colossians 3.11, Paul writes, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Now, all you have to do is pull the historical thread from here, y'all. And you see how these Two doctrines totally upended Greco-Roman society and Western civilization. Within three centuries of Jesus, the Christians had persuaded the popular culture that the least among us deserve our love. One second human rights don't exist, the next second it's everywhere. And yes, I'll be the first to acknowledge Christians have had their brutal moments throughout history. Start with, you know, like the prophet Jonah. In nationalist fervor and anger, he literally hopes God won't show his mercy to the people of Nineveh. Move from there to the Crusades or from there to the slave Bible. You heard of this? What an atrocity. Terrible moments. 
But these moments emerge not because Christians were following our doctrine, but because they were living despite it. One of the great thinkers uh, that sort of got us moving in this direction was the fourth century uh, bishop of Caesarea, Basil. Basil of Caesarea. Not Basil, Basil, okay? Um, <clears throat> his work actually shaped our attitude toward the poor. Um, he argued that scripture, again, makes the claim that the poor have an inherent claim on the goods of the rich. He writes, that bread you keep belongs to the hungry. That coat you have in your wardrobe, to the naked. Those shoes which are rotting in your possession, to the shoeless. That gold which you have buried in the ground, to the needy. As often as you have been able to help others and refused, so often have you done wrong. Oof. Every time I read that, I think about my closet and I'm like, Shh, I ain't inviting Basil over saying. In AD 370, uh, Basil was, he was actually one of the, the, he was the first, the first to establish a public hospital that provided health care to the poor. Now, for what it's worth in the fourth century, you could get health care, absolutely, if you were rich, if you were a Roman soldier, or perhaps if you were a citizen, but not if you were poor. And Basil thought that should not be so. So he started a movement that caught fire, honestly, across the Roman Empire. He established his in the Byzantine, basically the Eastern part of the Roman Empire. 20 years later, Fabiola started the first public hospital in the Western part of the empire. This woman, what a saint, read her story. So it is said that Fabiola was incredibly wealthy because she came from the family that founded the city of Rome. That's some ched right there. That's generational wealth. But, uh, but Fabiola, after uh, her family founded Rome, she found Jesus and she was discipled by Jerome, the one who wrote the Latin Vulgate, pretty good pastor to have. Uh, and she decided that she needed to use some of that money to serve the sick. So she built a public hospital. Now I wanna be clear, it wasn't like Christians were like the lead innovators in medical science at the time, they were not. A lot of the technology that was used and science that was used in these public hospitals was developed by ancient Greek tradition, the traditions of Galen and people like that, right? The medical technology was not exclusively or uniquely Christian, but the idea that the poor deserve care, now that came from saints like Basil and Fabiola who believed every human being was created in the image of God and died for by Jesus. Now, again, continue to pull the historical thread. Go for it. You can pull it through the medieval times. I won't bore you with all the historical checkpoints, but the data is clear. This isn't Christian apologetics. This is just history. It's history. Look at the civil rights movement. One of the greatest and most transformative political movements of the 20th century, led by Christians. Dr. and Pastor Martin Luther King argued this. He said, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the image of God, there it is, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget that as a nation. 
I love this line. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Amen. So look, to, to the justice warrior today, I ask you again, why human rights? Why? Who does a better job explaining why humans have rights and motivating people to honor them? I would suggest to you that Christianity does. And I would also suggest to you, it seems our world has smuggled thoroughly Christian doctrine into their worldview and then chosen to have historical amnesia. Now we're running out of time, but for what's worth, okay, we'll just cover these real quick. Um, the Secular Academy has basically acknowledged this, that Christi Christianity has played a huge part in bringing human rights to the, the modern world. Um, but they're still trying to build an argument for why human rights without Christianity, without God. And there are three main arguments that are out there right now. And I, I mean, I'm not gonna have time to do them all justice. I wanna blow through them really, really quickly. But it's important that you are aware of these, okay? Because this is the kind of stuff that you'll hear. Um, argument number one um, is natural law. Natural law. Basically, the idea um, is that uh, nature proves that humans have special rights and, and special dignity. Just look around. Now, the only problem here, though, is that Darwin is over here like, oh, wait, hold on, wait a second. That's not what nature says. Rather, nature... Nature proves survival of the fittest. Nature proves that the strong eat the weak, not the strong defend the weak. So I don't know about appealing to, to nature. The, the argument just doesn't stand up fundamentally. Second, the second argument is the argument of the progressive majority. Uh, this is the idea that we have all progressed to this belief. Come on, get on the bus. It's evident to all rational and educated people. Get on the right side of history. That's the way that it's thrown at us, right? The problem with this though is that majority rules which is basically what this argument is, right? Majority rules is not a safe way to build morals. Because you see, if the majority creates human rights, then guess what? One day the majority could take it away. And don't you put that past us, human beings are evil. Look at Russia and Ukraine. Look at how the Chinese government is systematically exterminating Uyghur Muslims. Look at the history of the United States of America with black people. Look at Hitler and the Jews. Germany elected Hitler less than a elect, elected, elected Hitler less than a century ago in one of the most educated and cultured nations on the planet Earth. So argument number two, it just doesn't hold. Third, the third argument is the argument for rational capacity. There are a fair number of secular thinkers today who say that based on the rational self-governing capacities that humans uniquely have, we deserve special rights. Basically, we don't give vegetables and animals the same rights that we give humans because we're rational, right? But again, you could probably see where I'm going with this. The problem is here uh, that some human beings have impaired or undeveloped rational capacities. The mentally disabled, the mentally ill, the elderly woman with dementia, the unborn or newborn child, they don't have those capacities. So do they lose their rights? Of course not. You see, 
See, now this is what makes Christianity so beautiful. Christianity grounds your rights in the image of God and the cross of Jesus. If you're mentally disabled, if you're a newborn, totally dependent on your mom, if you have Alzheimer's, whatever. So look, let, let me bring this to a practical close here and a Christian invitation. Human rights were developed and popularized by Christianity. That's history. And I believe Christianity has the best intellectual resources to justify human rights and motivate us towards them. So I would invite you, anyone in here today who considers themselves a justice warrior, anyone a part of the younger generation who feels so conscious of the injustices of the world around us and wants to do something about them, I would invite you today to consider Jesus. He started it. He is your founding father. Justice, human rights. You say, okay, you know what we say? Jesus is why. Jesus is why. And he is also why we are the Love the Ville Church. Jesus is why we are praying right now to raise $2 million over the next month, which would be a new record. I don't know how we're gonna do it with, you know, financial uncertainty and inflation and all the things, but it's what we're praying for. We're praying for 2 million this year. And he is why hundreds of people around you right now, for the record, this is not like a guess. This happens every year. It's been happening for six years now, so I know this is true. Hundreds of people around you are going to donate their bonuses. They're going to cut back on their Christmas luxuries. They're going to make lifestyle changes in 2023 so that partners like Up can end homelessness for about 100 women and children next year. Jesus is why. It is the image of God that compelled us to donate $100,000 this past year in the middle of financial uncertainty to tornado victims in western Kentucky and flood victims in eastern Kentucky because, as Basil taught us, our bread is their bread. Our coat is their coat. Our savings account is actually their relief. It is our core doctrines that motivated us this year to sponsor three more refugee families in KRM. It's God's justice this year that led us to serve 28 single parents uh, that include 52 children with Spark Hope. It is the cross-shaped love of Jesus that drive our comfort cover ladies over the past 14 years to give away 4,500 blankets that they made to the sick in our city. It is our deep desire for shalom that convicted over 60 Northeast volunteers to start a construction team that just goes around our city doing good. They completed 15 projects around the city this year for elderly neighbors and nonprofits that couldn't afford it otherwise. Jesus is why we are mentoring kids in the public school system. Jesus is why we are partnering with pastors all over the world to bring clean water to their villages. Jesus is why the volunteer liaisons who filled the stage behind me give up their time and energy to pray, plan, and lead. Jesus is why we are training engineers in Myanmar to keep our hospital up and running there while their government literally hunts them down and they daily live under the threat of martyrdom. Jesus is why. The hundreds of gifts got snatched up from you by the 9 a.m. service last week. <laughs> Jesus is why. Jesus is the one who shows us how valuable every, human, human, uh, every, every image bearer truly is. Whether you are rich or poor, Jesus thought you worthy of his life. Whether you are able-bodied or physically 
challenge Jesus thought you worthy of his death. Whether you are a man or a woman, black, brown or white, young or old, you've never lived a day of your life or breathed a breath in your life unloved by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son and his son gladly gave his life for you. And the reason why we clap is because this is a message of hope for the rich and the poor alike. You may have no job or you may be a CEO. You may have no money or you may be retired by 40. Your government may be for you or against you. Your society may tell you you're worthless or elite. You may live comfortably today or you may live enveloped every day by the darkness of despair and a hopeless tomorrow. No matter what though, hear me now, the gospel tells us that we are not defined by the valuations of this world. Rather, it tells us we're all beautiful, we're all worthy, and it tells us the ground is level at the foot of Jesus' cross. This is what we believe at the Loveville Church. And I want you to imagine a community that embodies this gospel. What would it look like? Wow, that's shalom. That's justice and that's what we're after. Everyone gets what they deserve, the dignity of an image bearer. And everyone gets what they don't deserve, the cross-shaped love of Jesus and the free gift of God's grace. So look, no matter what you think about you or what the world thinks about you, we know what we think about you. You are one of the beloved. So won't you claim this identity today?